You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. Today we are talking about unity, or perhaps a more helpful word to use for unity is harmony. Uh, When I was in elementary school, I think in the fourth grade, I started playing viola, and I was part of the orchestra for six years. And I can tell you because I've seen the old VHS tapes of my elementary school uh, orchestra concerts, is that harmony is not exactly the word I would use to describe what I witnessed when I watched those VHS tapes. In fact, you could say it was the opposite. It was a cacophony because it was, you know, a bunch of 10-year-olds who hadn't learned really how to play their instruments, let alone how to play in accordance with one another. And so people are playing really loudly and the bows are all going different directions. But over the years, as I got into middle school and even high school, I finally learned how to play in harmony. Uh, where everyone is playing, not the exact same thing, but everyone is playing in sync, in relationship with one another. It's why an orchestra needs a good conductor. An orchestra is not just a collection of musicians. In fact, uh, you could have an orchestra with a few really, really good musicians, but if everyone is playing something different or starting at different times, it's not going to create Harmony. I think that's why this word harmony is really a helpful word for us to use for the kind of unity that God really desires for us in our lives. The question I want us to really wrestle with today personally is do you create harmony wherever you go? Are you a person who's playing out of tune or you're playing a solo really loud or are you someone who is actually able to sync up with others and create unity to be a peacemaker like Jesus calls us to be? The reality is if you look at the world out there and even if you look at the church and in our own lives, this has been a brutal year for division. It's a year where the world is full of so much noise and it's creating this dissonance, this cacophony, these horrible sounds buzzing around in our hearts, in our minds, and in our culture, where culture is really screaming at us to pick a team, to pick a side, and the dividing lines have been drawn by culture. And they're saying, pick a side, and the other side is the enemy. So it's Republican or Democrat. It's Trump or Biden, it's vaccine or no vaccine, mask or no mask, black lives or blue lives. And these are all just messages that are being signaled to us from culture. And yet we are called to pursue unity. We are called to be people of peace. And this is, has more to do even uh, not, not just with our personal comfort and our enjoyment of we want to be a part of a, a church that is united. We want to be in a community that, that has harmony. We're actually called to this by Jesus himself. In John 17, Jesus prays for unity for the church. See, Jesus prayed that the world would see God through our unity. That's why Jesus prayed for us to be unified so that we would see, that the world would see Jesus himself. But too often, the world sees itself in our division. What happens is in a year like 2020 and and even into this year where there's so much trials and tribulation and people are really hopeless 
and they're desperate and they're searching for hope. So many outsiders have looked into the church to see if there's something the church has to offer them. But when they look into the church and they see the same exact kind of fights and quarrels, the same exact kind of dissonance and division as they see in the rest of culture, really what they, they say is, what does the church even have to offer me? I mean, I, I'm, the culture is looking at the church. They're looking for hope. And too often, all they see is themselves. They see a reflection of the same things going on in culture. And yet in Scripture, we are told there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are are told that there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father over all. And we are called to pursue a greater level of unity than is even possible without the gospel. That's why I'm so excited for our summer teaching series. We're going to be going through the entire letter to the Ephesians in the summer. And you might be familiar, the letter to the Ephesians is really written to a divided church a church where there's this fierce Jew-Gentile division. And it's really how all things are going to be united under the kingship of Christ. So stay tuned for that. I'm super excited as we begin our summer teaching teaching series in just a few weeks. But for today, we are going to be in Romans chapter 12. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 12. And the sermon today is going to operate a little bit different than usual. Usually we would take a key idea, like harmony, and we would just drive it home and illustrate it, and there'd be examples and really kind of get deeper and deeper. Uh, But really the teaching text we're looking at today is the greatest hits of relationship skills. Uh, What Paul does is he employs a literary style called perinesis, and really there's three key features of this style. The first one is its moral exhortation. So it's, you know, these are things we should do. Uh, These are commands that we should follow. In fact, almost all the sentences are imperatives. They're do this or don't do this. So this is moral exhortation. The second feature is it relies on tradition. So some of the teaching uh, today you might be familiar with, that's because Paul is borrowing from uh, teaching tradition. So he's even going to quote Jesus at one point in uh, the scripture today. And then the third feature is it's really loosely structured, which I know for some people that can be infuriating. There's no like argumentative development. It's just like rapid fire. It's like a shotgun of, you know, do this, do this, do this. And there's a huge list. So here's what I think would be helpful for you. Uh, We're going to be creating a top 10 list of the greatest hits of relationship skills. So you can go ahead and write, if you're taking notes, the numbers 1 through 10. And really, it's going to be a lot like maybe you uh, were watching TV and you saw that commercial for the, wow, now, you know, wow, greatest hits, or, uh, you know, now that's what I call music. And it just played each of those little sound bites, you know, for those CDs. And maybe you, you bought one of those CDs and you called the 1-800 number. Well, that's really what we're going to see today. And it's not disjointed. They're all under the umbrella of these are things we must do if we're going to have a healthy kind of community. But maybe my challenge for you would be to really kind of use this as an assessment for your life and to say, are there one or two or or a few of these characteristics that maybe you're weak in and, and you need to grow in and to kind of put a star next to those or to highlight those and for those to be things that you take seriously and allow the Holy Spirit to grow you as we grow in our community. So let's go ahead and jump into the text, starting in Romans 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, 
Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Like I said, this is like a fire hose. This is, this is like a machine gun, rapid fire. So let's go ahead and jump in and just break down some of these different characteristics that Paul is telling us about. The first one is sincerity. What that means is our love is not pretend. Sincerity, he says, let love be genuine. Literally, the word for genuine there is not hypocritical. Not, it, it's not an act. It's not just something that we fabricate or we manufacture. John Stott says it like this. The church must not turn itself into a stage. For love is not theater. It belongs to the real world. Indeed, love and hypocrisy exclude one another. So, so for all of these characteristics, really, and really for, for love, the kind of love that Jesus calls us to, it's not meant to just be something we pretend to do. We don't just show up on Sundays and pretend to love the other people. We must actually be moved by the love God has showed us to have a genuine love for one another. Number two is discernment. Discernment. We must hate what is evil and cling to what is good. What this means is we aren't blind to good and evil. We aren't blind to good and evil. And really the culture would tell us that the most loving thing that you could do is to be accepting, be inclusive, be affirming of, of any, anyone and, and however they behave and whatever they believe. But that's not actually true love. I would say that's another form of false unity. It's actually relativism where everything, you know, there is no truth and everyone's truth is their own. But we must actually exercise discernment. See, we are called to pursue both unity and truth, not unity at the cost or at the expense of truth. And in fact, one of the most loving things you can do for someone, think about maybe your own kids, or imagine if you had kids, one of the most loving things for them is not just to tell them that you will always love them, but when they're running after something that is evil, to correct them and to bring them back to the way that they should live. See, every good parent wants their kids to know, no matter how far you run away, I will always welcome you home. But you don't want your kids to run away. You don't want your kids to pursue things that you know are destructive for them. So that's the second thing. We must exercise discernment, moral discernment about right and wrong. The third thing is warmth. Philadelphia, uh, it's brotherly love. It means we actually like one another. That's what it means to, to show affection and brotherly love towards one another. We actually like one another. We, we don't just pretend to love one another, and we don't just pretend to like one another. We actually uh, know each other. We spend time with one another. We swap phone numbers. We go out to coffee. Uh, one of the things that I'm excited about this summer is the return of park days. June 6th is going to be our first park day, and we're going to try it out in June at Cecil Andrus Park right outside the Capitol building, and it's just, you know, bring a blanket, bring uh, a camping chair, uh, bring your own lunch, and we just hang out. Uh, from 12.30 to 2 every single Sunday in the summer. And we do those kind of things because we want to actually create a community where we know one another and we actually like one another. Number four is honor. Would you show people how valuable they are to you? And maybe you would say, yeah, I, I, I'm an honorable person, but do people actually know that they're valuable to you? Because so often what happens is we might think about a compliment. We might think about an encouragement. We might think about something nice. I should really you know, buy a gift card for that person. I should really take that person out to lunch. And then so often we don't do it. And so to really be honorable or to outdo one another in honor, if you're going to compete, if you're going to be a competitive person, why don't you compete to show the most honor to other people? 
Would you seek to outdo one another in your marriage, in your parenting, in our church? And I would just ask you this question. Are you honorable in how you treat and how you talk about people in our church? Because I think gossip and slander is maybe even one of the ways that's actually breaking down and destroying the honor that we show to one another. Number five is enthusiasm. This is what it means to be on fire with the Spirit. Do not lack zeal, but be fervent in spirit. That word fervent is literally a glow or, or on fire with the Holy Spirit. And maybe you've been like that before. You've known someone. Maybe even the week after they got baptized, there was just this kind of radiating of the Holy Spirit from them. There was an enthusiasm to actually pursue mission and to share their faith, and, and, and they sprung up really fast. But over time our fervor or our zeal or our enthusiasm actually starts to fade away. And for us to be the kind of community God has for us, we need to be on fire with the Holy Spirit. So what that might mean for you is it's through worship, through reading of the word and sitting in the word, through prayer that you would actually spend time in God's presence and you would live out of that overflow and that you would rekindle or reignite the spiritual fire in your life, because we have to acknowledge that true community, true community is actually a work of the Holy Spirit. It's not just something we can do on our own hard work. It's something that the Holy Spirit really creates within us. So we need to be on fire with the Holy Spirit. All right, number six is perseverance. This is what it means to be constant in tribulation, to hold on to hope, to, to keep praying, to find joy. It means just keep going, keep going. I know it's a hard year. I know it's, it, it's difficult. I know you have trials in your life and, and sometimes it's hard to even get out of bed in the morning. Here's what I would say. Keep going. And in fact, the community of the church is meant to be one of the tangible expressions of the hands and feet of Jesus. If you're going through something right now and you, you just feel like I'm just all alone and maybe you're watching this, you're a part of Hill City, but you've been watching for months and months and you say, I feel all alone. Would you even reach out and fill out a connect card so that we can find people to surround you with, someone who can actually help you bear one another's burdens and be the tangible expression of the love of Christ? And the seventh characteristic we see here in these first few verses is generosity. Would you share what you have with people? So there's generosity, a contributing to the needs of the saints. And then there's also hospitality. And that word hospitality is not Philadelphia, it's philazenia, which is love of strangers, not love of a brother or sister, but love of strangers. And this is especially important in the ancient world. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a, a Holiday Inn, there wasn't a Marriott Hotels, there wasn't you know, as many options for people. Airbnb didn't exist, obviously. And so people relied on the actual hospitality of having someone to stay with, having someone feed them a meal. And for us, we need to be ready and willing, like the early church, to contribute to the needs of one another. Uh, if someone in your life group, and this is really, life groups is a great outlet for community and to experience that depth of Christian community, is help someone move. You know, help someone uh, with what they're doing on their yard. Help someone with their yard work, right? Like, have people over to your house. And this is one of those things why I believe the future of the church is not a digital-only church. Because you can't have a meal with someone uh, that you don't know. 
You, you can't sit down and spend time with someone if your only interaction with them is online. And so that's why, you know, as the world begins to open up, we need to be open to being in one another's lives so that we can actually accomplish the things that we are called to accomplish as the community and having meals and sitting across the table from one another. So that's the first seven, uh, again, greatest hits of relationship skills. Let's go ahead and see the next three, starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony. There's our word of the day. Harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So number eight, what we see is bless. Bless, that means to work for the good of all. Even someone who's working against you, even someone who wishes evil or has done you wrong, even someone to the degree that they've persecuted you. This is a quote from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that we should bless those who persecute us. And what the word bless means is it means you just work for the good of others. You just wish well for others, but, but it's not just a, a heart posture. It's something where you actually do something. You serve them, you love them, you pray for them. In Genesis 12, we see that same blessing language where God calls Abram and he says, I'm going to bless you so that you'll have a great family and I'll bless your family so that they can be a blessing to the rest of the world. Well, even though we're under a new covenant, we have that same calling. When God blesses us, it's for the purpose of us blessing others. And so would you live your life to be a blessing for others? Number nine is sympathy. Sympathy means we feel with one another, not just you feel for someone, because that's often what we do. We'll see a post about a difficult thing someone's going through, and we might say, man, I feel so bad for that person. But to weep with those who weep means you're sitting with them. And, you're, and it's hard. You're, you're vulnerable, and you're allowing what they're going through to actually, you're sharing the emotion with them. And there's something powerful, not even just about the advice you can offer to someone who's going through something tragic, but just to sit and to be with someone and to be silent and to just weep with those who weep. But there's also the positive side. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We're there for the the bad times. We're also there for the good times. We show up at one another's parties and celebrations. And uh, again, we have to actually like one another to do this. We have to actually have one another's phone number. And it might start as small and as simple as going out to coffee, but where it ends up, the kind of depth of community that God has for us is a kind of community where you're showing up to to someone else's funeral. You're showing up to the darkest moment in that person's life, and you're also there for the graduation parties. You're also there for the announcement of a new birth, right? We're there for the good times and the bad times. And then the 10th greatest hit, and this should be no surprise, is harmony. Live in harmony with one another. What that means is you live in sync without being the same. Last week I introduced the idea of unity is not uniformity. It's not at the cost of diversity. It's not that everyone has to be the exact same, think the exact same, you know, uh, and, and do the exact same things. What really true unity is, it's harmony. It's where we're living in sync. Again, it's that orchestra metaphor. There's a conductor and the violins are all playing one part and the violas are playing and the cellos are playing and and not everyone's playing the exact same thing, but they're all playing in relationship with one another. Literally, the phrasing is it's to think the same thing towards one another. Not to always agree on everything. We must agree on the most important things. 
we agree on who Jesus is, we agree on the gospel, we agree on the foundation of our faith. But if there's other fringe issues, well, we allow those things to be fringe issues and we think the same way or we feel the same way towards one another. We continue to show one another love regardless. So that's the list of 10. And I know we, we blasted through those really fast, but I would just challenge you with that question. Which one or which few of those characteristics do you need to grow in in order to be the community that God is calling us to be? In the next few verses, what Paul is going to do, he's going to kind of change gears a little bit. All of these characteristics, or at least most of them, are specifically directed towards one another in the church. Uh, of how do you interact with and treat one another in the church. And the next few verses are specifically dealing with difficult people, which may exist in the church, but usually those people exist outside of the church, people who actually are doing wrong and doing evil to you. And we are called to even not just love your neighbor, as Jesus says, we are called to even love our enemy. So let's look at how we can actually do that. In Romans 12, continuing in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So here, we already had a list of 10, so here's our list of three, and these are three do's and don'ts for dealing with difficult people. The first one is don't repay evil with evil. Don't repay evil with evil, and that's exactly what we want to do, right? We want to give people a taste of their own medicine, right? They can dish it. Can they take it, right? And that's kind of our our posture is if someone, you know, even in a conversation says something mean to us, we want to dish it right back to them. It's the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth mentality or attitude. And yet what Jesus says is he teaches us to turn the other cheek. So don't repay evil for evil. And I know that's your natural tendency. So what do we do? We live at peace whenever possible. That's what we're called to do. We're called by Jesus to be peacemakers because those are the sons and the daughters of God. So instead of adding more evil, we actually take evil out of circulation. Instead of escalating, because it's often not an eye for an eye, we do two eyes for one, right? Because we want to teach them a lesson they'll never forget. We actually de-escalate situations because we live at peace whenever possible. And we take evil out of the equation. Now, this is really difficult to, to do. And in some situations, it may not even be possible, right? And there's two kind of qualifiers, as much as possible and as far as it depends on you. So we just have to own our end of the street. Are you someone who is easy to seek peace with? Are you someone who is easy to reconcile with? And we are always called to forgive when we are wronged by Jesus. You know, if, we, if God has forgiven us, we are always called to forgive one another. But that doesn't always result in reconciliation, because it's not always possible because there's another side of the street. So as far as it depends on you and as much as possible, be someone who creates peace. And if it's not possible in some situations, we just need to walk away. We just need to walk away. But so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's the first uh, don't and do. The second one is don't take revenge. 
Don't take revenge. You're not Batman, okay? Uh, vengeance doesn't belong to you. It's not up to you to deal out justice. See, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth saying was actually never for personal use. Even in the Old Testament, it was not to be used like personally. If someone does something, then you you right then and there can get them back. It was actually for the civil authorities to, to, to not escalate a situation. So the punishment fit the crime. And we are called from Jesus to turn the other cheek. And that is a radical non retaliation. One of the most difficult things that we can do is if someone wrongs us to not take it into our own hands, if, if we can take it into our hands, to not do it, to not pay them back for what they've done. So instead of taking revenge, here's what we do. Let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And, and there's two reasons for this. The first one is because we're biased. We're biased, especially if we were the ones who were wronged. Our punishment may not always fit the crime. It's probably going to be worse than the crime. But God is the perfect judge. God is the one who understands justice perfectly. He understands situations perfectly. God is always right. So we are biased, but God is always right. And then the second reason why it's not right for us to seek revenge is because it's not our job. It's not our place. You are not the judge. God is the perfect and rightful judge. And in fact, God has actually put judges in place in the form of civil authorities. And there's two ways that that God will actually pay people back. The first one that's really kind of most obvious to us is on judgment day. There's a whole day for it, right? When Jesus returns, there's judgment day and and every wrong will be made right and will be paid for. And, you know, all of that sort of stuff, there will be a reckoning. So even if someone, uh, you know, gets away with a horrible crime in this life and they never get caught, that their sins will find them out eventually on judgment day and God will judge the righteous and the unrighteous alike. But really here in Romans 12, what Paul is more specifically thinking of is not necessarily judgment day, although that's true. He's thinking about God judging through his established governing authorities. In fact, you can read Romans 13. The very next verse has to do with the fact that governing authorities, civil authorities, are put in place by God to use their authorities to deal out these kind of judgments. And so for us as Christians, the reason why we don't have to take vengeance or revenge or retribution in our own hands is because we actually have a means of seeking out justice through the, the local authorities. So you can call the police if someone robs you. you, know, you there, there's a court system. There's justice system. You don't have to keep someone in the jail of your own bitterness because there's actual jails if they did something that's bad enough. So it's not our job to judge. It's up to God, and God uses civil authorities to actually, uh, to actually enact the justice that should happen. So those are the first two do's and don'ts. The last one is this. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't be overcome by evil. This is really one of the, the, the problems of when we start to try and re- repay people and seek revenge on people is what happens is we sink down to their level or we sink down to the level of evil, and evil actually starts getting in our bones in a way, and we become violent or mean or bitter kinds of people. And it can harden our hearts if we become the judge, jury, and the executioner in those kinds of situations. And we might think, you know, if only I could, you know, yell at that person. You might be rehearsing or just it's a slow burn when you're going to bed and you're thinking about all the mean things you would say or, you know, even a violent outburst, right? We might think if only I could act or speak on, you know, these, these angry emotions I have, then I'd feel better. 
what happens is you actually might get addicted to fulfilling those kind of angry emotions and you might become an evil person yourself. Don't be overcome by evil. Here's the do. Do overcome with good. Overcome with good. It's not enough just to take evil out of the equation. You replace it with good. You put good in circulation. You, you bless people who curse you. You help them. Uh, what Paul says, he says, what if you actually fed them and, and gave them a drink? Like buy someone a drink, buy someone lunch, take someone uh, coffee, uh, pray for them. Not pray for their judgment, pray for that person. Pray that God would help them and bless them. Think of ways that you can tangibly love people. And when you do this, it's going to heap burning coals on their heads. And I know that's a little bit of a confusing metaphor for us. But really, I think the best interpretation of this is we all know what that feels like, right? Where you did something wrong and someone actually forgives you and they do something nice for you. There's this gut feeling of, you know it's wrong all of a sudden. And there's a feeling of shame. And the burning coals is really meant not just to make that person feel bad, but to actually bring them to a point of Repentance. I love what R. Kent Hughes says. He says this, In doing good to our enemies, we will heap burning pangs of shame and contrition on their heads that hopefully, not surely, so it's not a guarantee, but hopefully, not surely, will lead them to God's grace. And that's really what I think Paul is getting at with this idea of heaping burning coals, that you actually seek the good of others to the point that you actually overcome the evil with good. And then you have another person who's responding to the grace of God and seeking good and, and, and doing good in the world. But we're left with this question of how could we do such a thing? I mean, these do's and don'ts, it's really all about people who are seeking our evil and who have wronged us and hurt us. And not to minimize the hurt and the pain that you've been through, I, I'm sure that it's valid and it's, it's, it's you know, gut-wrenching in your soul the ways that people have harmed you. How can we actually return good when we've received evil? And the answer to that question is it has to come out of the gospel. It has to come from a place of actually having received the gospel. This is what Paul says earlier in Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Really, Romans 5, 1 and 2 is just telling us the gospel, that we've received grace. We, we have peace with God. And I just want you to hear this. If you've never responded to the good news of the gospel, it doesn't matter how much peace you have with, with other humans if you don't have peace with God. That is the most important relationship for you to get right is that vertical relationship to have peace with God. And, and once you do, it's actually out of an overflow of that peace, you can have true peace with other people in your life. So I would just challenge you. Today can be the day that you respond to the gospel. Today can be the day that you, you experience justification and forgiveness of sins, that you actually receive the joy and the hope of the glory of God. And so today I would, I would call on you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for you, that He rose again, He can raise you up into new life, and that you would pray a prayer today asking God to forgive your sins and to lead your life, that Jesus today could be the Lord of your life. I would also uh, encourage you to respond by putting your faith in Jesus through the step of baptism. There's that key word, faith. We are justified you know, by grace through faith. And really, baptism is that, uh, that ceremony of declaring your faith in Jesus. 
Uh, last Sunday, we got to celebrate with, with two people who got baptized in our services. You can check out the video of that on our social media later. But I would just encourage you to check out our website, hillcityboise.org slash baptism. You can watch a Baptism 101 video and you can even sign up to get baptized on there. And we would love to walk alongside you as you take that step of faith. But for you, maybe you've already put your faith in Jesus. This Romans 5 is really a central reminder of how we can live at peace with people whenever possible. This is how we can actually have harmony and true unity is when we look to Christ as your example of peace. See, I remember Christ when he was going to the cross and he was enduring the false trial with the high priest and he was being beaten and he was silent the whole time. And I remember when, when, when he could have spoken up for himself even with Pontius Pilate and that puzzles Pilate. He says, why don't you defend yourself? You know, don't you know I have the authority to set you free? And Jesus says, you would have no authority if it wasn't given to you by God. And so he takes the brutal, the whipping and the beating and the crown of thorns and he even took the cross. He took the cross so that you could experience grace, so you could stand in the grace in which you now live your life. And if Jesus, it's through Jesus Christ that we have peace with God. If Jesus did that for you so that you could have peace with God, then we can actually pay that price of of peace for other people. We can actually endure an incredible amount of hardship and keep praying and keep hoping and, and, and hold on to hope and find joy in the midst of those sufferings. But we can actually continue to pursue peace and be the peacemakers that God has called us to be. So today, remember the goodness and the grace that you have from God and overcome evil with good. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.